Father of truth, your word is truth. There is not a speck of falsehood found in you. You have not spoken one empty word. Not a single thing has failed to come to pass when you have spoken it. Your word is life. It's food for our souls. Our bodies and our minds are so quick to acknowledge their need for physical nourishment while we starve our souls. So forgive us. May we run to the table of your word that's overflowing with nourishment for our needy souls. By your help, may we abide in the life-giving supply stream that is your word. Give us life according to your word. Your word is strength. May we grasp so tightly to your word that we have no room to carry the weight or the sin that hinders us. Strengthen your weak servants according to your word. We desperately need your help. Our hearts are inclined to selfish gain, and we neglect what is truly gain that comes from your word. We seek you half-heartedly, and often only at our own convenience. Our eyes are wandering eyes, looking at worthless things, instead of seeing your infinite worth in your word. We look for life outside of your righteousness. So we implore of you this morning that you would teach us your statutes, that we may keep them until the day we die. Give us understanding that we might obey your word wholeheartedly. Lead us so that we might delight in your very words. Make our hearts thirst for your testimonies. Turn our wondering eyes to your word. Give us life in your ways. May we be in awe of the God of the word. Open our eyes to see how good your word is. And in your righteousness, please give us life. In your name we pray. Amen. Christ is supreme. Christ is preeminent. Christ is sufficient. Christ is the Lord of all. Jesus, Lord of creation, wonderful Savior, head of the church. Each of these statements give us an idea of Paul's emphasis in his letter to the church at Colossae. This letter didn't come from Paul as a rebuke for their lack of faithfulness. But instead, it served as a warning. It reached the church as a reminder of where the foundation of their faith was. It begins, like all of Paul's letters, with a greeting. A divine hello. My prayer has been and is that our study of Colossians will result in Christ-likeness and in Christian maturity. And in the first two verses of Colossians, we have Paul's greeting to this church. Now, it'd be easy for us to dismiss this as just a simple greeting. It's routine. But Paul has something to say that goes far beyond his personal opinion. He desires to minister to the souls of this church. So he does so even in this greeting. And he does so including in this greeting somewhat of an undercutting of the error that was hanging out in Colossae. When we consider that error that was hanging out in Colossae that could potentially, potentially take captive those believers, we'll see really strong connections to the day in which we live, to the attacks that are being made on the church today. 
But instead of taking the jump to hyperspace so that we can jump from Colossae to Oak Grove, we will go about it as British theologian, as a British theologian suggested, suggested us. First, we'll make the historian's journey, the original meaning. Then we will make the theologian's journey, returning to our own time. Let's see what God has to say through Paul to the church at Colossae. Verses 1 and 2 of Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. First thing we see in this passage is the cinders. The cinders. Here we have Paul and we have Timothy. Paul describes himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul is a sent one. He's set apart. He's an ambassador. He is a messenger for Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 sheds understanding on this that Paul wasn't exactly like the other apostles. No, he was one or as one untimely born. He wasn't selected like the other apostles had been selected. You could say that he checked into the game a little bit later. He describes himself in 1 Corinthians 15, and also here, he describes himself as an apostle. And in Colossians 1 verse 1, he says, not just an apostle, but an apostle of Christ. Our connection there, our minds, like the readers, should go to the promised Messiah. So he says, I'm an apostle of the promised Messiah, of Christ Jesus. Jesus, the one who would save his people from their sins. As we'll see throughout the book of Colossians, Paul is wrapped up in Christ Jesus. He's been sent by Christ himself. He's been set apart by Christ himself. And he is his ambassador, his messenger to this church and to the Gentiles. Behind these words, Christ Jesus, we should understand that there's an entire work of preaching and teaching about Christ Jesus. It's encompassed in the entire ministry of Paul up to this point. So these two words that he uses, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus, these two words were the foundation on which the congregation at Colossae was started. That was the foundation of their faith. This is why in chapter 2 and verse 6 of Colossians, Paul says, just as you received Christ the Lord, continue to walk in him. Continue to walk in him. They had started with Christ Jesus. They were to continue with Christ Jesus. A.W. Tozer said, The Bible recognizes no faith that does not lead to obedience. Nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring forth from faith. The two are opposite sides of the same coin. Just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to walk in him. Paul is an apostle of King Jesus. He's called and he's sent by the Messiah himself. The same Christ Jesus that they had received is the same Christ Jesus they are now to walk in. But what gave Paul the right to pen a letter to this church? What gave him the right, the authority? He stated that authority, but as having that authority, what gave him the right to send this letter? Reading these words, an apostle of Christ Jesus, the original reader would have understood Paul to be saying that this letter was not self-appointed. This was not Paul's idea. His letter 
was God-appointed. And because his letter was God-appointed, it carried God's authority. So Paul has every right to address the church at Colossae. And the Colossians should take particular note of this because they should know that they now should receive Paul's words for exactly what they are. These are the words of God himself to the church at Colossae. So don't forget that the authority behind this historical letter to a church in Turkey is the same authority that FFC receives it with today. This is God's word. The church at Colossae had no right to manipulate this word. They were only to submit to this word. So as we read God's word, this letter to the church at Colossae, we have no right to manipulate it. We're only to receive it as our authority and submit ourselves in obedience to it. Further weight is given here to the authority of these words when Paul says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, there's a whole lot wrapped up in this little phrase. It's a statement of God's unmerited grace that was unleashed on Paul. It was poured out lavishly on him. God's unmerited grace, Paul said, set him apart before he was born. God's unmerited grace dropped Paul to his knees on the road to Damascus. But God didn't stop Paul in his tracks to say, Hey, Paul, let's negotiate for a moment. No, God executed his sovereign takeover plan and he claimed Paul as his own. This reminds us that there is not a soul on earth that's unredeemable when God's grace is unleashed in his life. Not a soul on earth is unredeemable when God's grace is unleashed in his life. If you belong to God today... It's because God sovereignly took over and claimed you as his own. God's unmerited grace called Paul. It chose him as an instrument to carry Christ's name to the Gentiles. God's unmerited grace revealed these truths to Paul in the book of Colossians so that we would share them then and he would share them with God's authority and we would be recipients of it today. So Paul is simply stating that he is where he is Because God poured out his grace upon him. His life was providentially shaped by his creator who set him apart for a specific task. Today, our lives have been providentially shaped by our creator. We serve God by his will in both the place and the capacity that he designates for us. God's providential shaping of your life. Where do you see that evidence in your own life? Where did the church see this evidence in their life? At this point, the church should understand that these words aren't merely of human origin. This is not Paul sitting around pinning some opinions or he's received this from Epaphras and said, oh, they really do need help. Let's help them. No, these words had divine origin and this, the church, the recipient, should understand that. So in the senders, we have Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy. He describes Timothy as our brother. Timothy, co-sending this letter with Paul, our brother. In his writings to the church at Philippi, Paul had some words to describe Timothy. He said, Timothy's a standout guy. Really, he just explained him 
explain him to be this standout guy. He was the guy that when you're playing basketball, he'd set screens for you in a pickup game so you could get a better shot up. He did all the things that don't show up on the stat sheet. He, he was the guy that would he'd run to the truck to grab a tool for you while you waited, while you did something else. He was the guy that at the family gatherings, he stood around and he watched everybody else go to the table and serve their plate to make sure that everybody got plenty before he served himself. He cared for the welfare of others more than he cared for his own. So Paul includes him here at the beginning of this letter. He had proved his worth to Paul in a very specific way, though. He was a co-worker in the gospel. He was a gospel co-worker. But Paul doesn't selfishly hoard Timothy here and say, Timothy, my brother. No, he says, Timothy, our brother, whom we share. You see, Paul hadn't started this church at Colossae. He, he hadn't even visited this church at Colossae. But he and the Colossians had a mutual gospel brother in Timothy. The gospel drastically changed the way Timothy and Paul related to one another. It also drastically changes the way we relate to one another. All who are in Christ have genuine fellowship. Paul, Timothy, and the church at Colossae. Now in different places, Paul and Timothy here, Colossae here, they shared a brother in Timothy. All who are in Christ have this genuine fellowship. All who are in Christ have this shared love, this shared concern, and this shared desire to see spiritual maturity in the lives of other believers. So Timothy here was listed as a co-sender, not as an apostle, but as a dear brother to Paul, as a dear brother to Epaphras, and as a dear brother to Colossae, who no doubt shared the same concern that Epaphras and Paul had for the recipients of this letter. Verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. The first half of this verse we see the recipients. The recipients were saints and faithful brothers. Saints speaking of union with Christ. Faithful brothers speaking of unity with the brethren. What does it mean though to be a saint? Is Paul saying that these are the candidates that somehow will receive the most outstanding member award? Is he maybe saying that these people in Colossae, these saints and faithful brothers, have somehow excelled in holiness above the rest? So like Timothy stood out to him as a brother, as a standout guy, is he saying that these people I'm addressing are those who are standout Christians? As we'll see in our continued study through the book, Paul's not speaking at all to an elevated position. He's not speaking to an elevated experience that believers could achieve. He's going to strike that elevated experience down. He is still speaking to their current position. And what is their current position? To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. That was true for Paul. That was true for Epaphras and true for Timothy and it was true for the church at Colossae that if they were in Christ, it was only by the grace of God. To be a saint then, what does it mean? It means to be chosen by God and set apart for His purpose. He's addressing all those whom God has set apart for His purpose. So as Colossians will teach us, 
To be a saint means that you've been transferred to Christ's kingdom from the kingdom of darkness, picked up from the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of his dear son. You've been moved from darkness to light. So he's saying the church at Colossae belongs wholly to God. They are saints. They've been set apart. But Paul also says they're faithful brothers. And while it's common for Paul to address the brethren as holy or as saints, as set apart, it's not so common for him to address them as faithful. But here in the book of Colossians, he does. In doing so, he commends them for being what? For being reliable, for being steadfast and committed to Christ. These believers are faithful brothers. These brothers were faithful in Christ, to the cause of Christ. So the church at Colossae, with whatever error was outside, with whatever philosophy endangered them, they were known to be faithful, obedient to Christ. So those today who are gathered here who are in Christ, could the same be said of you? Could the same be said of us? Would this be pinned to say the believers, the brothers at FFC are characterized by faithful obedience to Christ? But Paul moves on to their placement as he continues to speak when he says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. So the first placement he refers to is that by the grace of God, they were placed in Christ. So these faithful brothers in Christ, speaking of every believer in Colossae, in Colossae, he's saying your placement is identical. What is your placement? In, it's in Christ. It's identical in Christ. He's saying just like I was wrapped up or am wrapped up in Christ, so the believers at Colossae are inseparably wrapped up in Christ, all in relationship with him. And just like Paul's story, their story too was one that was all of God's grace. They were placed in Christ by God's grace. What C.S. Lewis said may help us to understand how Paul here and the brothers at Colossae and we today are placed in Christ. He said this, Amicable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. For me, they might as well talk about the mouse's search for the cat. You and I know that the mouse is not on the hunt to find the cat. No, God closed in on me. God closed in on Paul. God closed in on this church. This is the truth of your sainthood. This is the truth of God's electing love. He has sought you out. Before you came to him, he came to you. The reason you came to him was by his grace, he came to you. What a faith-strengthening truth for us. That to be in Christ is to be inseparably embraced in Him. Christ has sought you out, and by His grace, He will keep you. And as the songwriter said, Oh, in Christ, in His embrace, there are 10,000 charms. In Christ was the only placement that these believers needed to be reminded of. Not something outside of Christ that could be added to. But they're not just in Christ... Paul says here that they are the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. At one time, this city was much more important than it was when they received this letter. 
It was located on the Lycus River, about 100 miles, give or take, from Ephesus. But now, this city really lives between the shadow of two more important cities, Laodicea and Hierapolis. The church itself at Colossae was a young church. Most likely, this church had been planted by Epaphras, and most likely, Epaphras had been reached by Paul on one of his missionary journeys through Ephesus. So Epaphras, most likely, as its founding pastor. In its stage of youth, though, something had happened. The church was in enough danger that Epaphras saw it important to travel a significant distance just to get help from Paul. The makeup of the congregation was a blend of Gentile and Jew. There are several things that they found through the years to help them try to balance what that percentage was of each, but it was a blend of both, mostly Gentile. But as we will see, the threat that was outside seemingly making its way inside the church at Colossae was one that Epaphras and Paul both thought it might take the church captive. And it was somewhat of a smoothie king approach to Christian experience. It was a blend, a mixture, throw this in, throw that in. It was philosophies from their pagan past before they knew Christ, before they were in Christ, along with human tradition and some elemental or world forces, some strict keeping of the Jewish holy days, a mix of asceticism coming in and angel worship, these personal visions or experiences that people would talk about. Those are just some of the elements of this dangerous variation from the gospel that seem to have been attracting the attention of at least some within the church. The false teachers emphasize these things as being necessary for spiritual growth. As the path to living in a greater experience with Christ. So being in Christ, not quite enough. You need to add these things to your in Christness, if you will. Paul, though, says something different. He says to those who are in Christ at Colossae, that anyone teaching these things is a false teacher. That these false teachers are puffed up, they're proud. That these false teachers are disconnected from the head who is Christ, who is the only source of growth. So when he reminds them of their in Christness, he is reminding them of their roots that will take them to spiritual maturity. Growth is looming when we understand who our root is, where we started. So he's reminding them of this, and he's saying anyone that offers growth outside of Christ, give them no attention. In chapter 2, he says, growth is from God, not from these practices, not from what the false teachers here would be pushing, or from this outside philosophy. The false teacher's message, we could wrap it up by saying, Christ is not Sufficient. That is the message of the false teachers here at Colossae. Christ is not sufficient. You need something more. Paul's message, simply, Christ is sufficient. The church was in Christ, who is sufficient, but they were also at Colossae. See, the church, here they are members of two communities. What communities are they a part of? They're members of a heavenly community, they're also members of an earthly community. They're in Christ on one hand. They're at Colossae at the same time. Today we find ourselves 
as believers in Christ, but also in Oak Grove, or in Clarksville, or in Hopkinsville. What we need to understand is what the church at Colossae needed to understand, that one of these community memberships should drastically affect the other. The fact that we are in Christ should drastically affect and change the way we live in Oak Grove, in Clarksville, in Hopkinsville. We are in Christ and in the community that Christ has providentially placed us in. One of these community memberships greatly outweighs the other in its importance, but let's not neglect the fact that God has placed us in a community for the sake of the gospel. See, it's the in Christness of those that are in Colossae that was to lead to their spiritual maturity. Their in Christness was to lead to consistent spiritual growth. So Paul wanted the Colossians to understand that, that Christ is superior. Christ is superior. He is above all. He's superior to all world systems. And there is nothing outside of Christ that will complete them. There's nothing outside of Christ that will bring wholeness in their life. They are complete in Him. He wants the Colossians to understand that Christ is sufficient and that there is nothing that could add to the fullness they already have in Christ. We'll see that word fullness throughout Colossians as we work through it. But there is nothing outside, there is no mixture that will add to the fullness of who you already are in Christ Jesus. So church, run away from anything that promises you fullness outside of Christ. Run away from anything that promises you fullness outside of Christ. This is a story that we see through the history of mankind, this search for fullness. And Paul says, as a church, stop looking outside for fullness. You won't find it there. There is no additional person. There's no mixture of religious system or discipline that can add to the fullness that you already have in Christ. There's a song that says, Complete in thee no work of mine may take, dear Lord, the place of thine. Thy blood hath pardoned, bought for me, and glorified I too shall be. Yea, justified, O blessed thought. Sanctified salvation wrought. Thy blood has pardoned, bought for me, and glorified I too shall be. This is Paul's message that they are complete in the sufficient Christ. Life began for you in Christ, and spiritual growth will continue the exact same way in Christ. Let's look to the second part, verse 2. Paul says here, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace and peace from God our Father. Paul's story is a story of grace. If you are in Christ, your story too is all of grace. The source of that grace is God, who has made you a child who is now your father. This grace sees Christian life and growth 
as a free gift from God. Christian life. Those who were dead in trespasses and sins brought to life in Christ. This is by the grace of God our Father. Christian life came from no other source outside. It didn't come from what people could deny their bodies of. It didn't come from any mixture of outside philosophy. No, it was a gift from God alone. They became a part of God's covenant people by grace, and now they are to mature as God's covenant people by grace. Their status then is ultimately dependent on God's own unmerited intervention. Their status, the church at Colossae, their status of in Christ is dependent on God's unmerited intervention on their behalf. That is the same for us. Your status today, your in Christness, does not depend on your keeping of the law. Your in Christness is solely a work of God who has intervened on your behalf. Here is our brother Horatius from long, long ago. If you have that name today, blessings to you. Here's his explanation of grace. Just, yet the justifier of the ungodly. What glad tidings are here. Here is grace. God's free love to the sinner. Divine bounty and goodwill. Altogether irrespective of human worth or merit. For this is the scriptural meaning of that often misunderstood word, grace. This righteous free love has its origin in the bosom of the Father, where the only begotten has his dwelling. It is not produced by anything besides God himself. It was man's evil, not his good, that called it forth. It was not the like drawing to the like. No, it was the like drawing to the unlike. It was light attracted by darkness. It was life attracted by death. It does not wait for our seeking. It comes unasked as well as undeserved. It is not our faith that creates it or calls it up. Our faith realizes it as already existing in its divine and manifold fullness. The grace of God. We are recipients of God's grace, not because of human worth, not because of personal merit. We are recipients of God's grace And that grace originated with him. There was nothing attractive in my dark soul that caused God to extend his grace to me. No, it was the grace of God and only the grace of God that redeemed us and that sees us through to fruitful obedience in life. So this letter had a very specific purpose. What is the purpose of this letter? Why did Paul introduce himself and Timothy this way? and extend grace and peace to the brethren. This letter was meant as a means of grace from God through Paul to Colossae. This means of grace was to spur them on to what? To maturity, to spiritual maturity. They were to grow in Christ. Just as they received Christ, they were to walk in Christ. So this letter is a means of grace from God to Colossae. We can also say that this letter is a means of grace from God to us. 
So he says grace to you and peace. We sing of this peace when we sing it the, in the very last verse of we will feast in the house of Zion. Bind us together. Bring shalom. Well, what is this peace? This peace is the wider blessing of belonging to God's covenant family. The wider blessings of belonging to God's covenant family. The wider blessings that come from being in Christ. So it's not only personal peace of mind. It's not only peace of heart. No, this refers also including the wider blessings that come along with being in Christ. So Paul has a desire that his readers, that his hearers, would be recipients of the grace and peace from God through the very words that he pins to them. Recipients of grace and peace through the word. Paul desires that this letter, again, be a means of grace, bringing about mature peace. So we could also say that the letter to the Colossians is meant to be a means of grace to you, to all who are in Christ, bringing about mature peace or wholeness, we could say, from the Father. It's a tragic thing to watch people pursue peace apart from God's enabling grace. You've seen it. You have implored to God on the behalf of your children, of your family, maybe a spouse, as you watch them pursue peace apart from God. We could say, oh, the places you'll go and the things you'll do when pursuing peace apart from God's grace. Today I implore with you, are you looking for peace? Look to Christ. Are you looking for fullness of life, for a wholeness? Look nowhere but to Christ. Unbeliever, you're seeking for peace. You could say, though, that you're seeking for forgiveness. Someone, something to alleviate you, to forgive you. Look to Christ. You're looking for future hope in a world that you'll not find it in. Look to Christ. In Christ is grace. In Christ is peace. In Christ is forgiveness. In Christ is fullness of life. As Philip Doddridge said, it is he that is my peace. And by his blood it is that I am brought near. It is in him that I am made acceptable in God's sight. May Christ be the only one we look to, the only one to which we plead. Again, I'm reminded of the song that in Christ there are 10,000 charms. In his embrace, going back to the fountain from which the spring flows, understanding that if we have received Christ, if we are in Christ, that is the fountain of goodness. There is no goodness outside of Christ. There is zero growth outside of Christ. There is zero adding to spiritual experience out of Christ. Fullness, wholeness in life, we could say purpose in life, forgiveness, grace, that is in Christ alone. So may we be reminded 
that there are no externals that will add to our spiritual maturity or make us grow. There's no list of sins that you haven't done. There's no list of virtues that you can pursue. If you are in Christ, it is by the grace of God and that is where we are to continue to stand. Complete in Christ who is all sufficient. The letter to Colossae. This was a divine reminder. This was God's reminder to that church of where grace and peace was found. And it was found in Christ. So as you read this letter, and I would encourage you to do that, it will only take you a, a moment to sit down and read it entirely. As you do, remember that this letter is God's divine reminder to you of where your grace, where His grace and where His peace is found. That is in Christ. In a moment, we'll gather around the table. We'll partake of the Lord's table together. Remember that God has ordained this table to be a reminder to us. It's a reminder for us of the grace and peace that are ours today in Christ. When you take the bread, when you take the cup, as you do, I hope you'll remember the grace and peace that are now yours solely by God's grace in Christ alone. So in our partaking We're reminded of the grace and peace that are ours in Christ. But we're not just reminded of this, we also say something. See, partaking of the Lord's table, this is an act of worship. We are remembering the grace and peace that are ours in Christ, but we're also proclaiming something. We are proclaiming the death of Christ till He comes, and in proclaiming that, we are saying, in Christ, I found grace and peace. In Christ, forgiveness is mine. In Christ, fullness of life is now mine. So may we both remember and proclaim in our worship, taking the Lord's table. Let's pray. Gracious Father, what we deserve is to suffer and to die because we're sinners. But you were pleased to provide salvation for us by your grace and by your mercy. You sent your son to make satisfaction for our sins so that all those who are in Christ, all those who've repented of their sins and turned to Christ by your grace should be saved. So today we rejoice in the fact that you loved us first. We rejoice that there is hope for every kind of sinner. We rejoice that you didn't cast us out, but instead you took over. Instead you claimed us as your own. For this unspeakable gift, we praise you. May these next moments of worship serve as your reminders to us of the grace and of the peace of God that are now ours in Christ Jesus. Amen.